is a short passage this morning, short paragraph dealing with Paul's confrontation with Peter. <clears throat> now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Father, we have been set free in Christ. And Lord, we need to live by those convictions that have set us free. Lord, we don't need to, to yield. We don't need to bend to pressures of the world. We don't need to yield to pressures by the legalists. We don't need to bend or to compromise to the liberals. Lord, we need to follow biblical convictions. We need to follow them regardless of what others think around us, Lord. The gospel is at stake. The integrity of God is at stake. And Lord, God, we have been bought with a price. We are not our own. Therefore, we are to glorify you with our spirit and with our body, which are yours. Father, help us to understand the magnitude of this short little paragraph of why Paul thought it was imperative for him to call out another apostle publicly to straighten out something that could have devastated early Christianity. And not only early Christianity, but it would have had ramifications for every generation since. And Lord God, these principles are being rejected today. And so I pray, God, at North Valley Bible Church, that God, that we would be people that have biblical convictions that we don't compromise. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning I'm talking about just living consistent with your convictions. Living consistent with your convictions. Obviously Peter wasn't living consistent with his convictions, was he? And Paul thought it such a serious offense that he called him on the carpet right in front of everybody. Um, I'm sure that was humiliating for the Apostle Peter, and I'm sure it was difficult for the Apostle Paul, but something like this needed to be resolved, and we're going to look at this passage in depth this morning. The surrendering of Christian liberty, that's not what this passage is about, because we ought to surrender our Christian liberty when necessary. What I mean by Christian liberty are those things that are non-essentials to the Christian life. Those things that are not biblical commands or Bible doctrine. There are our preferences, the way we like things to be done. And it's a mature thing to willingly surrender and to yield those liberties and freedoms for the betterment of the body of Christ. And Peter was not doing this in this passage. That's not what this is about. To surrender a Christian liberty for the greater good should be considered commendable. But to compromise a biblical conviction should be considered 
cowardice. That's easy for us to say in America because we don't have a whole lot of pressure. That's not the case for the majority of the world. In fact, before we go any further, I just want to stop and I want to pray for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Because we have no idea what it's like right now to be in a bomb shelter, not knowing if we're going to even see tomorrow. Or what it's like to put our child on a train, wondering if we're ever going to see our child again. We've got it comfortable, and we've got it easy here. And we need to remember those who are suffering as a part of the body of Christ. So I'm just going to pray, and I just ask you to unite our hearts together and pray for that afflicted part of the world. Father, God, this morning, you see what is going on, Lord. And we know that you're a good God. And we know that the heart of man is desperately wicked. James tells us where wars come from. They don't come from you. They come from our lusts, our desires to possess and to have and to take. And God, the only thing that will defeat that is the power of the gospel and the power of forgiveness. And Father, we know that there are many, many in the country of Russia today who are standing up and saying this is morally wrong, and they're paying the price. Believers in the country of Russia are outspoken and protesting, and we pray, God, today that their voice will not be quenched by the communist dictators and those despots who hate liberty and who hate freedom and who hate God. Father, we pray that you will bring resolution quickly, Lord, God, we pray for the Ukrainian church, for the believers, for the children of God, that, Lord, that they will point people to the refuge of the cross. That, God, that when we get to heaven, we will hear of hundreds of thousands of people in the country of Ukraine who became followers of Jesus and found eternal life and found a kingdom that will never be destroyed because of this evil. God, we pray today and we ask you, God, to turn this for good. God, we pray for the refugees that are crossing into Romania and into Poland. God, that you will provide them with what they need physically and what they need spiritually, Lord. God, we pray for the aid workers, for Samaritan's Purse, that, God, you will enable them and empower them to share truth in a relative way of love and compassion and that the heart of Jesus would be seen. God, we pray that you would overcome evil, God, with your goodness and with your grace, and by your power, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to just encourage you to continue to pray for that part of the world, that we can just pray without ceasing and pray daily. Sometimes it's not easy to discern if I'm doing the right thing when I feel peer pressure to please people. Sometimes it might be the right thing to please people. That sounds strange. But it's the right thing when I'm trying to please people because I'm willingly laying down and sacrificing what I believe to be my own privileges and rights. But it's never right to surrender my firmly held convictions for the sake of looking better in the sight of man. That is sin. And that's what's being addressed here.
We live in an era when biblical convictions are mocked. When you believe that God has put one man and one woman together for one lifetime, that's criticized. There's no stripe in the rainbow flag for us. When you hold that God has ordained leadership in the home and in the church for men and women and that their roles are unique and equal but yet separate and different, that is ridiculed and it's called intolerant. So we, we know what this means. It's often called bigoted or narrow-mindedness. But this has always been the case for those who love Christ. This is nothing new. This has always been the history of the church. We are to stand out and to be light. We are to hold forth the word of God as our uncompromising standard. We can never yield our convictions for the purpose of being thought of better in the eyes of man. A conviction is the virtue that demonstrates what one holds to be true is true for all ages and for all circumstances. That is a conviction. A conviction is the quality of firmly maintaining a belief or opinion in spite of all opposition. That's the kind of people we need. That's what will change Utah. People who have convictions. They say, this is my biblical position and I'm not going to water it down to please people. Convictions cause us to count the cost and willingly pay the price in order for truth to prevail. When Daniel was offered food that was against his biblical diet, it says in Daniel 1.8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuch that he might not defile himself. Daniel would rather defy Nebuchadnezzar than to defy the living God. That's the kind of people we need. That's the kind of believers we need to be. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to comply when they heard the music and bow down and worship the statue that represented Nebuchadnezzar. This was their answer. O king, we will not serve your gods. And he said, whenever you hear the music, you need to be ready to bow down. The cornet, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music. You worship the image that I have made, but if you do not, you will be cast that same hour into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those were their Hebrew names, not those Babylonian names. Hananiah. God is gracious. Michelle, who is like our God. Azariah, the Lord is my strength. It may have changed their names, but it didn't change their hearts. These men replied, If it be so, our God, he will, the one that we serve, he will deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image that you have set up. 
In America, Christian after Christian has compromised his and her biblical convictions until it's only nearly unrecognizable the difference between so-called Christians and the world. The lines are, are so blurred that sometimes if you went into a Christian home, you wouldn't know if you were in a pagan home or not by what's watched on the television, by the conversation, by the priorities of their checkbook. Not only Christians, but church after church, we have gradually moved the goalpost of the Bible until we have compromised so much that if Jesus was to come back, he wouldn't recognize it as the church that he established. Jesus never tried to be politically correct. <laughs> and many of his statements would never be found in a church growth manual. In fact, the things that he said are probably being discouraged today by those who want to build the megachurch. This is what Jesus said when the multitudes were following him. He was not interested in having a megachurch ministry. When the multitudes were following Jesus, he turned around and he said, when the great multitudes followed him, he said, if any man comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brother, his sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. How many churches are preaching that today? And I'm not doing this to pat ourselves on the back, but we've got to stay with the Bible. Unless you hate your life, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean I despise myself. It doesn't mean I belittle myself. Hate in the Bible has, has a, a specific meaning. It's used with Jacob's wives. It said that he loved one and he hated Leah. And he didn't hate Leah, but it meant that this was the affection, his covenant wife that he was going to be faithful to, that all of his priorities were going to be put into this woman. And that's what Jesus was referring to. Because we're not to hate our parents. We're not to hate our children. But in relevance or in re relationship to our love and our pursuit for God, it should pale in significance. That's what Christ is calling us to. He went on to say in that same teaching, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I became a Christian at the age of 17. I said a prayer at the age of 8 because I walked down an aisle and I raised my hand in an evangelistic service because the pastor said, if you don't want to go to hell, ask Jesus in your heart. And I don't know too many eight-year-old boys that want to go to hell. So I quickly raised my hand. And then the evangelist said, if you raised your hand, you need to come down to the altar right now. And then he read Revelation 20 to me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears my voice, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. And I remember him telling me, Jesus is knocking on your door right now. Do you want Jesus to come in and you can go to heaven with him? And I said, yes, I do. And I walked away from that experience a lost eight-year-old boy, I'm convinced. Because I didn't come to Christ because I was an unworthy sinner. I came to Christ because I didn't want to spend eternity in hell. And I lived selfishly. I lived ungodly for the next 10 years. And then my grandmother sent me a Bible. And the first time in my life, I read the words of Jesus. And I remember trembling at his words. I continued to read through the New Testament. And I got to a passage in the book of Galatians, and it says, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And 
I knew that I was not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And in my bedroom, I got on my knees, and I simply said, Lord Jesus Christ, come into my life and change me. And I remember going back to school the next day, and all my friends thought I had sort of slipped a cog because all I could talk to them about was their souls and about who Jesus was. I never went to an evangelism class. I had met Jesus Christ, and he changed my life. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. If any man will come after me and will not bear the cross, you're not his disciple. The cross is an instrument of death. And if you want to come to Christ, this isn't lordship salvation. This is saying, I want to die, and I believe. My faith is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and if I place myself in Jesus Christ, he will give me true life. I'm not finding life. Sin is not bringing me life. It's bringing me death. It's bringing me grief. It's bringing me guilt. And I believe that Jesus Christ is my answer. And I am putting my faith in what he did for me. Jesus finished this with a parable. He says, which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has sufficient to finish it? So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I don't think the Lord is teaching us today that we need to go home and put a for sale sign in front of our house because then you'll be home. He doesn't say that I'm expecting you to, to put your house and your car on the market and just walk away from everything. No, God wants you to provide for your family. God wants to put a roof over your head. He promises he's going to do it. But what you do is you say, Lord, everything that I have... It now belongs to you. My house on 26th Street in Madison Avenue, it is not my house. It is the Lord's house, and he can use it however he wants to bring him glory. You talk to Brother Rick. God has blessed him. But I think God has blessed Brother Rick because Rick says, everything that I have is for the kingdom's sake. And I could point probably to all of you who have opened your homes and have given yourself to see this church grow and, and, and to move forward. And that's what God wants from us. Lord, it is yours. You use it for your glory and for your kingdom, God. I want to see people come to know Jesus Christ. And all of it belongs to you. Jesus is calling men and women who are willing to consistently Follow their biblical convictions, regardless of the cost. Believers in communist countries, in Islamic countries, in places where violent Hindus live, they have been doing this for decades. And it's coming to America where we're going to have to consider the cost to follow Jesus Christ. It's already been here and just in subtle ways, hasn't it? When and why to confront inconsistencies. So let's just address when first. When do we confront consistencies in our life? When it adversely affects other believers. That's when I need to confront the inconsistencies in my own life. When my inconsistencies and not living up to my biblical convictions and same for y'all, and it's adversely affecting other body of Christ, that's when we need to address it. Second question we're going to answer is, why do I need to confront my inconsistencies? And the answer to that question is because it compromises the integrity of Christ and it compromises his gospel. We watched a DVD this morning on Way of the Master on evangelism. And it says less than 2% of the followers of Jesus share their faith with people. That is a serious compromise of our conviction, isn't it? Jesus said, 
Go ye therefore, an imperative, make disciples, an imperative, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. Jesus said, come after me and I will make you to become a fisher of men. It is sad that when I give out gospel tracts, when I give out the New Testament to people, when I give out a gospel of John, people assume that I'm a Jehovah Witness. This past week, I, I had, a, had a backpack and I was walking downtown and, and giving them to people. And the guy says, oh, are you a Jehovah Witness? And I says, well, why do you think that? He says, well, they're the only people that are out here talking to people about God. He didn't say, are you a born-again Christian? Isn't that a travesty? He didn't say, are you a follower of Jesus? That is a commentary on the Christian church and how inactive we are at sharing our faith. So when it has adverse effects on other believers, we need to address it. So let's just kind of walk through some observation here. It was confronted when Peter came to Antioch. Paul didn't wait. He didn't put it off. You start putting things off, and it will be, as the Irish say, you put it on the long finger, it never happens. When you go into an Irishman's shop, and he doesn't have something, he says, I'll have it to you of a Tuesday. And you go back on Tuesday, he says, no, I meant the next Tuesday. And says, always, I'll do it of a Tuesday. And it, it, it never comes. Tuesday never comes. I, I lived in this, uh, this uh, housing estate, and our floors looked like a tidal wave. I mean, they were so bad that our couch, you could use it for a teeter-totter. <laughs> I'm not joking. And I would call up, his name was Willie Brennan. And I'd say, Willie, I says, come in and look at the floors. And he would look in the window, and he would laugh, and he would turn around and walk away. And then I would ring him on his cell phone, and he would look, and he would see my number, and he'd close his phone and put it back in his pocket and just keep on. And I was watching him. And I says, Willie, you rascal, I'm going to fix you. There was only one way out of our estate, so I got a lawn chair. And I set my lawn chair at the exit of the estate, and I sat there and read my Bible and did my study all that afternoon. And finally he had to leave. And he saw me sitting there in my lawn chair, and he got up, and he was laughing. I says, Willie, you're going to come in and look at my floor. And so he came in, and it was a mess. And he says, we'll replace it of a Tuesday. I says, no. <laughs> I says, you're going to replace it tomorrow. And they did. And, uh, but Paul knew that if he put it off, it wasn't going to happen. When do we do it? We do it when we have that opportunity and we don't let it slide. So if you see some inconsistencies in your life and you say, well, I'm going to get around to it. Keith's got some round to it and he's going to give them to you today. So you can get around to it right now and you can start changing those biblical convictions. How did he do it? When Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to the face. We've got to be serious about changing our convictions. When adversity affects others, we need to do it courageously, whether it's with another person or with us in my own life. When I see it, I need to do it with courage. Now, you might be asking yourself, why is Matthew 18 not being applied here? I, I got thinking about that. You know, in Matthew 18, it says, if your brother offends you, you go to him alone. And then if he doesn't hear you, you go with two. If he doesn't hear the two, then you bring him before the church. Seems like Paul skipped A and B and went right to C. And I think there's a reason. Well, one reason, and I could be wrong, but this is the earliest book of the Bible. Maybe the book of Galatians. And it's possible that Paul didn't have the gospel of Matthew. Now, that's probably the wrong answer because I think they already had oral tradition. I think it was already going around. In fact, the Apostle Paul and the Apostles paraphrased things from the Gospels about John the Baptist. 
So they already had, I think, a good word of knowledge before they sat down and wrote those narratives, those historical narratives about the life of Christ. So that's, I don't think, is the answer. But this is what I do think the answer is. One, it was to be done publicly because Peter's actions were done publicly. It was done in front of everybody what Peter did. Secondly, not only did it include Peter, but it says that the rest of the Jews, the remaining of the Jews, they did likewise. Paul wanted all of them who participated in that. It would be like me catching a boy in the bathroom, putting soap on the floor, so people slip and slide and fall down. And about three other boys think it's really funny, and they join them. Barbara's laughing. (laughs) She knows what I'm talking about. So I don't just call out the instigator. I get all those boys together and say, hey, that's not cool. That's what Paul was doing. There was an instigator. (laughs) Dennis teaches, so he knows what I'm talking about. And so he got them all in there. Said, hey boys, come here. The third reason the apostle was a leader, and his actions and his behavior affected other people in a dramatic way. First Peter, not first Peter, first Timothy five twenty two says, an elder. Who is sinning? You don't receive an action by one, an accusation by one person, but by two or three people. And the one that is sinning, you reprove before everybody, so that the others will fear. I think that that puts some fear in everybody. That Paul called out Peter in front of everybody. Maybe you weren't a part of that hypocritical group that withdrew during the lunchtime, but you watched that, you said, whoa, if Paul did that to Peter, I wonder what he'd say to me. So my first point is, is that we need to be aggressive. When we see inconsistencies in our life, we need to confront it with courage. We need to confront it head on. And we need to confront it. The third reason in this verse, verse 12, verse 11 Look at the word because. All we're doing is doing some observation here. Because he was to be blamed. He confronted him when he got there. He confronted him to face. And he confronted him because he was blameworthy. It's a construction in the original language. It's an imperfect being verb. Along with a present active participle. It means that this guy was in the past, knew better. The word to be blamed is kata gnosko. Kata means to bring down. Gnosko means knowledge. What he's saying is you had knowledge that's bringing you down and it's condemning you. Peter, you knew all the facts. And that's why you are blameworthy. The person who is blameworthy has sufficient information that he could have and should have done otherwise. When you compromise a biblical conviction and you know what that conviction is and you do compromise, James chapter 4 verse 17 says this, the one who knows to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And in this case, brother Peter had enough information, didn't he? Jesus says this to all of us in John 15, 22. If I had not come and spoken unto you, you would not have had sin. But now you have no cloak, no covering, no excuse for your sin. If you've got a Bible, if you've got the Word of God, you've got no excuse. If you've not picked it up and read it this week, That doesn't get you off the hook. It's still sitting in your living room. It's still sitting in your bedroom. It behooves you to pick it up and read it, right? 
We are blameworthy when we know and we have God's word and we don't follow it through. Now let's look at verse 12. Why was he blameworthy? For, that tells why, and now we see this little preposition, before, and then we see but when. There's the before, and then there's the but when. Something happened in between here. There was a disconnect in Peter, his brain here. The word that he ate with the Gentile means this was his customary action. He often did this over and over and over again in the past. This is the way he lived his life. Before people from James came, you would just go into a Gentile's house. You wouldn't think a thing about it. You always did this. Now, what information did Peter have? Probably thinking right now, if you're thinking biblically, what information did he have about eating with Gentiles? I know you guys are Bible students, so you probably went to Acts chapter 10, didn't you? And he's up on the rooftop, and he's getting ready to go down and eat lunch. And they've got some kosher food on the menu. And God puts down this sheet, and none of it's kosher. There's four-footed beasts. There's pork chops. There's crawfish. <laughs> there's catfish. All this stuff, and man, it looks good. And God says, Peter, get up and eat that stuff. And he says, no, I'm not going to. That stuff's unclean, and it's common, and I will never eat that stuff. It happens three times. And God says, what I have cleansed, don't you dare call it common. And about that time, three guys are standing at the door saying, where's Peter? And he goes off to Cornelius' house, sits down, and he eats with those guys and doesn't think a thing about it. Then we get over to Acts chapter 11, and boy, is he criticized and is he grilled when he gets back to the Jerusalem church. Let me just read three verses for you, what happened with Peter when he came back from that evangelistic trip. Now, the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea, they heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him. Peter knows what that's like. They Tended with Peter. Peter, what were you thinking? What were you doing? Those are the circumcision. They said, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them? Peter, what are you doing? And this is what Peter says at the end of this. When I begin to speak to these guys, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as us at the beginning. And then I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water. So you can see that these men already had sayings of, of, of the Gospels very early in Christianity. Therefore, if God gave the same spirit that he gave to us and the same gift, who was I that I could withstand God? Now I'm going to tell you a little parable, and here's the point of my parable. What you and I know and what you and I confess, one day we're going to be judged on that standard. Jesus told a parable. Three guys gave one guy, another one guy five, and another guy one. The one guy who buried the one talent, the master came back. He says, what did you do with it? How did you invest it for me? He says, I took it, and I knew you were a strict man. I knew you were a man that expected me to use this. I knew that you had high hopes that I would invest this well and I'd be wise with your money, but I was afraid I might lose it, so I took it and I hid it and I buried it. And this is what the parable ends with. You knew that this is the kind of person I was. You knew that when I gave you something, I expected you to use it. Therefore, out of your own mouth, you will be judged. What we know about this book, what we know about Bible doctrine, that's the standard that God is going to judge us. That is why Peter was blameworthy. I had given you the vision. You had been in the house of the Gentiles. You knew that you couldn't withstand God because God didn't put any separation between these two groups of people. And yet now, Peter, you're doing the very thing that I told you not to do. 
his behavior progressively got worse. He began to disassociate himself with him. It didn't happen overnight. This is, again, an imperfect tense in the Greek. It was slowly happening. And then he began to separate himself. The word is apo, which means to be from, and harizo, where we get the idea of horizon. We can see the horizon on the, on the, uh, on, on the, the sky, and that's the sort of the demarking line. That's how this idea of separate, and then he moved away from that. And, and this is what it means in a negative sense, and that's how it's used here, to separate. Because sometimes it can be in a good sense, but it means to mark off boundaries and to exclude something or someone as disreputable. And that's what Peter was doing. The reason for the change of behavior. Let's go back and look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with them. But when they came, he withdrew himself. And see this little I-N-G word. See the comma in your Bible? Fearing. That's a causal participle. If you don't know Greek grammar, you don't have to. All you have to do is know good English. And it's telling you, it's modifying, it's describing why he withdrew himself. Because he was fearing. That's the bottom line, isn't it? That's why he withdrew. He feared what other people would think. And I put for you this morning that that is one of the number one, that is probably the number one reason why people compromise their convictions. They fear what somebody else is going to think of them. Ron Goer shared this a couple weeks ago with the men. Proverbs 29, 25 The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in God will be safe. Yielding to unworthy fears will cause us to be inconsistent. The next verse tells us of the adverse effects that it had on other believers. So we're almost done with point one. Well, I didn't think I was going to go this long. It was only four verses. The adverse effect that it had on other believers is verse 13. The rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with the hypocrisy. I'm going to kind of just boil this down and shorten it. It says, even Barnabas. Here's a godly man. Here is a strong Christian. Here is a missionary who had been going to the Gentiles. And now he's withdrawing from the Gentiles just because Peter did and because this group from James was and, P- and Barnabas was afraid of what they were going to think of him. Now, let's don't be too harsh on these guys because I guarantee you I have done the same thing. Times when I should have spoke up for Christ and I didn't because I was afraid what people might think of me. Or when I didn't point out sin to somebody else because I was afraid that it might hurt that relationship. We're all guilty of this. But let's just look at the kind of guy Barnabas was. Acts chapter 4 and verse 36. Barnabas was a Levite from the island of Cyprus. And he took all of his possessions and he sold them and he laid at the apostles' feet. That's the kind of man Barnabas was. His name was Joseph. They changed his name to Barnabas which means the son of encouragement. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 22, when Paul became a believer, no one would associate with Paul. But you know who took him in and introduced him to the other apostles? It was Barnabas. When the church at Jerusalem heard that Gentiles were getting saved in Antioch, they sent Barnabas. When God called the first missionaries out of the church at Antioch to go to Gentiles, God called Barnabas. When they wanted to go on the second missionary journey, and John Mark had flaked out on the first trip, said, I'm not going, it's too hard. You know who wanted to take John Mark and say, let's give him another chance. I believe we can help this guy and, and, and we can work with him. Paul said, no, I'm not taking him. 
Barnabas said, I'll take him. He can go with me. That's why it's so important for us not to compromise our biblical convictions because it will adversely affect other believers. Point number two, because it compromises the integrity of Christ and his gospel. This point is only one verse. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live after the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as the Jews? The integrity of the gospel, biblical convictions cannot be compromised because the straightforwardness, it's a really cool Greek word. We know what an orthodontist orthopedic is. Well, this is the Greek word orthopedic, orthopedo. Ortho is straight, pedo is foot. And so it means to walk in a straight course. Now, our translation, the New King James says they didn't walk straight forward about, or with, let me read it here, uh, about the truth of the gospel. The, the word about is actually the Greek preposition pros, which means to go toward. They were not walking straight forward in a right manner toward the goal of the gospel. What is the goal of the gospel? The goal of the gospel is to forgive sinners. The goal of the gospel is to transform us who are sinners, that sin is no longer our master. The goal of the gospel is to give us a fear of God and not of man. The goal of the gospel is to separate all social, economic, racial barriers between all people. That's the goal of the gospel. That is the power of the gospel. And he wasn't walking straight forward toward that purpose and to that goal. And so when you and I are not consistent with our biblical convictions, we are sending people messages that don't make sense. Social distinctions are incongruous with the gospel. The gospel breaks down all barriers. There is no such thing as clergy and laity. I hate those words. I am no different from the rest of you. And I, I, I like that you call me pastor because I'm a shepherd. But at the end of the day, my wife knows it better than anybody. Man, I put my shoes on the same way you all do. And my laundry, it probably smells worse than y'all's. We're all the same. And Peter was just blurring that line that somehow these Gentile believers were second-class Christians. When you walk through the door of North Valley Bible Church, I hope you don't look at people and say, well, I know what his past was. I know what they used to do. God could care less because you know what he says? All of you are my dirty sinners, and I've washed you, and I've cleansed you, and I love you, and you need to love each other. And when we send those kind of messages... We're inconsistent with Christ and the gospel. Compulsion and conflicting opinions are abhorrent to the gospel. The Jews couldn't even live up to the standards themselves, could they? And now he's compelling them to live like Jews do. The mature biblical principle is this. When conflicting preferences are encountered, the stronger believers should consider the weaker in a spirit of Christian charity and love. But that's not the case here. But anything that smacks of compulsion and distortion of truth or causes someone to stumble must be rejected. The Jewish believers who are coming from James, they actually should have been the mature believers. But in reality, they're acting like the weaker brother. By making some believers feel like they were second-class citizens of the kingdom of God, we send a message contrary to grace, don't we? Underestimating our own sinfulness when we do this. We elevate our pride and put others down. It implies also that faith in Christ is somehow defective, and it's insufficient, and it must be supplemented with other things. On a positive note, as we end this passage this morning, 
we can take good courage to know that Peter and Paul didn't go separate ways after this. That's what often happens is confront somebody, they just get their feelings hurt, they say, you know what, I'm not going to have anything to do with that guy anymore. And how do we know that? The Bible doesn't tell us right but we implicitly see this. Because when Paul came back to the city of Jerusalem in Acts 22, the apostles came together with him and said, Paul, we are hearing all over the empire that you are telling Jewish people no longer to circumcise their children and to cast off the things of Moses. Now, Paul, this is what we want you to do. You've got a Nazarite vow, don't you, Paul? You've got to ready to shave your hair. And you're going to end this vow. You've come up to this feast. And Peter was a part of that apostolic group that talked to Paul and says, Paul, we want to us. And we pay the expenses of other men. You take them in the temple and you show everybody that us are all in agreement with this. Yes, Jews, you keep living on as Jews, but Gentiles don't have to. The second way that we know this is that the Jerusalem church and Peter asked Paul to take up offerings to take for the poor. We find it in the book of Philippians, where they're encouraged to take up this offering for the Jerusalem church. We find it in 2 Corinthians, where they're encouraged to take up this offering. We find it in the book of Romans. So the positive note, these men might have butted heads, but they appreciated each other's ministry, and they complimented each other later on in life. So let's be people that live consistent with our biblical convictions. Two reasons. One, it adversely affects others. And secondly, it compromises the integrity of Christ and the gospel. Father, God, I thank you so much that the word of God is given to us with such incredible clarity. That God, that we can follow it and we can submit our lives to it and by faith, we can trust, God, that when we follow you, we will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, I don't know what your response to this message will be this morning, how it worked in your heart, but I encourage you, after you leave this morning, meditate on what is happened. Look at your own life. Do some spiritual inventory. Look at some things and say, okay, these are some biblical convictions that I've not been living up to. Make a change today. Say, this is what I'm going to start doing. I want to live consistent in this area of my life what God has shown me today. And so that's, that's my simple invitation to you all today.